0: Hey everybody, it's Doug Schaefer at Schaefer Vineyards back with another episode of The Taste. Thank you for your patience. We've taken a long break, but we are back and ready for a lot more podcasts. Today, I'm talking with a guy who goes way back here in Napa Valley. His name is synonymous with wine made at the very top level. He's got a killer story, and I'm so glad to have him on today. We have a lot to cover today, so let's get started. everybody, welcome back. It's Doug Schaefer, another episode of The Taste. Uh, today we welcome a longtime friend, family friend, who I do not get to see often enough. Native of Napa, has been making great wines for a long time, many years, longer than me, which is saying something. And, uh, but we'd like to welcome John Consgard of Consgard Wines. John, how you doing? Very well, thank you. Nice to talk to you. Good to have you on. I was thinking last night about the first time we met, and you know, you might have to help me out with this. I think it was at a, a holiday, Christmas, Thanksgiving f- family dinner, your family and my family. Was that when it was? I that could remember. well be. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, I knew your I knew your dad before I knew you. Right, and I think there yep. was a time when uh, there was some holiday where... Your folks brought all you guys over to our house and all the kids you know had dinner together with those guys so i think that was when it was so there you go yeah probably was late 70s something like that Sounds anyway right. a lot yeah. to cover with you um there's your story the winery but uh i think we got to start with your mom and dad big part of this um i think I, as i read if i've read correctly you're a fifth generation nappin
1: is that correct that's correct on my mother's side. Yep. All right. Well, let's start with Mom. Tell what's her story. Okay. Well, Lorraine was quite a character. We should actually go back a couple of generations because this is the <laughs> good. This is the the funniest part is that her, I guess my great great grandfather was called Governor Lilburn Boggs. Okay. And he had the distinction of being the governor of Missouri when the Mormons tried to settle there. And he ran him out on a rail and the last <laughs> last Mormon to leave shot him standing on the statehouse uh, porch. He was then, I think, impeached or at least left in disgrace and came on a wagon train with, of all people, the Donner Party group. Oh, no. So, yeah. Saw through them and went up to Oregon and came back down to California when it was still part of Mexico and worked for General Vallejo. So oh, wow. We've been in charge here for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's my mother's descendant who got us there. Oh, and add color to that. Governor Boggs was married to Panthea Boone, who was said to be Daniel Boone's ugliest granddaughter. <laughs> so there you go. God, anyway, God, you, can, you,
0: you can't make this stuff up. This is no, too good. No, no. Yeah, Online. that's funny. Okay.
1: Uh, okay. yeah. That's, that's how we got here. Anyway, my mother was quite a different story. Lorraine Streblo was her maiden name. Your mother, and, my
0: memory, I'm interrupting. She was a wonderful yeah. woman. I adored her, but go ahead. Keep going.
1: Yeah, she was a dear soul, a great mother, and a pioneer in her day. She was the, one of the first uh, women to graduate from Stanford Law School. So uh, very independent-minded, uh, kind of a rascal, So it didn't suffer fools well, uh, but was nonetheless sweet to the people that she loved, Mm -hmm. including me. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So she was, she was uh, obviously grew up in Napa and met my dad when they were both at Stanford Law School. Got it. So, all right. Well, that's your mom, Lorraine. So how about your dad, the judge? What's his story? The the judge was born uh, to Norwegian immigrants. His grandparents came from Norway and as teenagers, independent from one another, met in Alaska and settled in Everett, Washington, north of Seattle. And he was blown up in the war, in the Second World War, on a, on a minesweeper in the Pacific and ended up uh, in a naval hospital in California, in Oakland. Uh, and that's what got him to California through, and, and eventually met my mom. So he was a judge. Um, he was a terrible lawyer, apparently, because he could always see th- see the other guy's point of view so clearly. So it's good that he got out of that and became a judge. So he he was th- like the judge in Napa for a long, distinguished career. Not not a hanging judge, they all said, but a very uh, even keel, wonderful guy. Yeah, oh,
0: he was a great guy. I did know him pretty well, and and. Yeah, we glossed over. He was in, in seriously injured. He lost, he lost part of mm-hmm. most of his leg, right? In yeah. That, he accident. lost He lost his left leg in the Pacific. Yep. Right. And but I remember- didn't, s- didn't slow him down. He didn't? I, well, yeah. Because I remember I'd see him out in the golf course and he, yep. he, was, he was an avid golfer. Hit the heck out of the ball. And, Absolutely. And, and I th- don't know if you know this story. I met him socially a couple times, but the time I really got to know him was uh, when I had to testify at a Believe it or not, a murder trial in Napa, and he was the judge. And I, had, oh boy, yeah. And this was something that happened when I was in high school, and I saw this car that was. And a year later, I'm home for vacation, for, you know, Christmas for college, and I'm reading about in the local paper about this trial on this this particular car. It was an old Cadillac ambulance. And I said to my mom, I said, I I remember that night. I remember seeing that car and I was dropping off this gal after a basketball game. And she said, you're kidding. And so she, was on, she and dad were on their way to a dinner party. They ran into your folks. She makes this comment to your dad the judge. No. The next day the DA is knocking on our front door saying we need to speak due to the urson. <laughs> so wow. I ended up testifying at this murder trial and I, I didn't, you know, all I could say was I saw this car, I couldn't identify anything, but at one yeah. point the de- defense lawyer was starting to get get after me pretty aggressively and your dad was great. He kind of came in and shut him down. So at that point Yeah, good. He was my favorite for sure.
1: Yeah, there you go. Great.
0: <laughs> All right. So he was a judge here for a long time, famous in Napa. And you, so you were, when were you born? Uh, 51. Got it. And, yep. And uh, two sisters, Mary and Martha, as I recall. Yep. One older, one
1: younger. Got it. Mm-hmm. So growing up in Napa, what was that like? Uh, it was a little, it was kind of a cow town, as we used to say. I mean, there nobody lived here. There was no restaurant in Napa that you could go to on, like on mom's birthday. We would all get dressed up, and we had to go either to Sonoma or San Francisco. I mean, it was a real backwater. Hmm. And it's worth saying there wasn't much of a wine industry then either. Um, For example, when I graduated from high school in 1969, I think there were about 18 wineries in Napa County. Wow. So, yeah, those are the old days. Compared
0: to 600 now, something like that. Yep, yep. So, but growing up, were your folks into wine? Was there wine in the house? Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. My dad was a good friend of Louis Martini, among okay. other people. And Andre um uh, lived just down the street from us and became a great friend of mine uh, in the end. Uh, so, yeah, there was always wine. He was sort of the uh, wine ambassador. When his law school buddies would come around, he would... Show him the difference between a claret bottle and a burgundy bottle, and <laughs> I mean the real basics, but yeah he was a he was a friend of all of those people, um the Mondavis and the Mondavis. and yeah, we had oh if it was Christmas we had charles Krug's special select Cabernet with a little red stripe on the corner and oh, old b v s and yeah yeah, yeah oh yeah. that's great I, I still have some. Louis Martini wine that was in my dad's collection when he died uh, from back to the 50s. So yeah, he was an avid avid wine nut. Good, good. And uh, my uh,
0: crack research team, we found out high school for you was down in Monterey, is that correct? Yep, yep,
1: I got shipped out. I was a fiercely dyslexic, uh, terrible student. And so I was not sent to reform school quite, but I was sent to a high-disciplined college preparatory school for boys robert okay. Louis stevenson turned out to be a great thing for me not least because i got to uh leave town as a teenager in the town where my dad was the judge so yeah was that not, not a bad
0: thing yeah that's not good because uh, yeah you yeah, don't want the sheriff uh, <laughs> calling your no. dad at night
1: <laughs> no no that's
0: right and high school interests, sports. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking music was a big interest, probably then. Yeah, I that's.
1: Uh, no, it was in high school that I okay. became a cl- classic music, classical music devotee. Yeah, not, not much sports. Sports was mostly cross country, so we could run down to the beach, dig up the football and the cabernet bottle that were all buried like uh, treasure on Pebble Beach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So after so
0: 1969. So I gotta ask because uh, you're a little ahead of my time. So, and you know I'm in high school watching the news. So you're going to college, and I'm watching the protests and all the hippies yeah. and the all. Oh, so yeah, yeah. W- were you like a long hair hippie guy? Is that
1: was that uh, your medium, look? Medium 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 hair okay. hippie guy. Uh, and I my father who was a war hero and a public figure. Even, even on the draft board, for example, um, he and I just truly defined the generation gap. He was the war hero and I was the Vietnam protester, you know, snot-nosed intellectual, telling my dad that uh, all wars were evil and I'm sorry about your leg, but uh, I'm not going to Vietnam. So I actually worked my way uh, toward becoming a conscientious objector to his incredible chagrin and even shame in the end we all patched it up and I, I got out of the, the CO, um, track because I was, I'm from the era of the, of the draft lottery and I was lucky to draw a very high number. So I could to spare my father's honor. I dropped the conscientious objector application and just, and just got out of the war that way. Yeah. Got it. Oh man. You know, I never even thought about that. That must've been really, you know, that must've been tough. Cause you, t- it was a rough time. It was. I mean, there was a, kid in my dorm in Colorado who we were all getting drunk watching the bingo game of our lives as they pulled your pulled dates your, out of the, yeah. And anyway, one of our buddies was number six and he was gone before you knew it and came back in a body bag just uh, like that. Just like that. Yeah. Rough It was a terrible period of American history, no doubt about it. It, it
0: really is. I was on the tail end. I, I was, they were still pulling numbers for me. So I remember that I turned 18. I went down to the Napa post office, downtown Napa. Mm-hmm you know, and Mm -hmm. registered and the whole thing. And unfortunately, fortunately, I got a a high number at that point. Yeah. War was winding down. But uh, yeah, I'm glad you guys patched it up. That's good. We
1: did. Yeah, that's good. We'll get into this at some point. But um, we need to talk about uh, my our most noted wine is is called The Judge. And um, I can tell you that now or later, but it's uh, has to do with this period and well, yep. tell,
0: me, tell me. Tell us the story now. Okay. If it's
1: appropriate. So, so I started growing Chardonnay uh, at the family place on Stonecrest Drive, just east of the town of Napa, right on the city limits, actually. Um, with the good fortune of our neighbor was Andre Chelychev, and he I was getting excited about planting a little couple acres there uh, when my interest in wine was... Getting the best of me, and Andre said, "Well, you should grow Chardonnay." I thought, "Really? He's like, no Chardonnay <laughs> in Napa." Anyway, he turned out to be right, and that vineyard is now uh, our flagship. But uh, in my dad died in uh, 2001, and in the subsequent vintage, we were. Um, well, I'll back up and say that when when we were having our arguments about the Vietnam War and war in general and all that, uh, we managed to keep our friendship going by him helping me while I was working on the weekends, getting this land cleared and planted uh, to grapes and it was perfect because I could send him off to the far corner of the field to do a burn or something. And we didn't have to talk at all except at lunch. And then we'd have a beer at the end and that was it. Right. Anyway, so we kind of kept it all going that way. And we, by the end of his life, we had certainly patched it up. He saw the folly of the of the Vietnam War. And mm-hmm. we agreed on a lot of things that we did that we disagreed on early on. Anyway, when he died uh, in 01, I was out there for the vintage, uh, picking, getting ready to pick the grapes. And I had a sentimental moment thinking about him. And I sent the crew home and just kept a couple of people. And we picked a, what would became a barrel worth of grapes from the favorite part of the vineyard and made that as a one-off wine, which I called The Judge. And the idea was just to make a barrel in his memory and give it to the law school friends. And that was going to be it. And then the wine was eventually discovered by various critics, and um, while well, it was still sitting in the barrel, and uh, a big deal was made of it, and so eventually it became a commercial wine, and now it's and now it's our our biggest deal. But it was all in honor of my dad, and because we kept our friendship going while working in that vineyard. Oh, John! Yeah, great story. Thanks for sharing yeah. that.
0: Yeah. That's oh all right i'm driving i'm driving up the hill to see you because i want to share a bottle that with you (laughs) yeah we'll do that we'll do that we'll tell dad stories that's for sure i'd I'd love it that'd be great ah thanks for that so going back to hippie land so after high school college was colorado college was
1: yeah i went to colorado i was i was uh just backing up uh i graduated from high school in 69 and I was interested in agriculture. My mother's father, Streblo, was a cattle rancher. They had a big, beautiful ranch that's now under water at Lake Berryessa, right. and there were a lot of cattle and horses around our place where we all grew up in Napa. Um, so I thought I, I really wanted to be in agriculture somehow, but my grandfather said, you're never gonna make it in the cattle business. This is a big business for me, but it's basically a hobby supported by his quarry business. So I, thought, I don't know how to do this. Maybe I'll go into forestry and be a forest ranger. I wanted to be out with plants and nature right. and so on. Right. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there was kind of no possibility um, at that point other than maybe the forestry route. So I went to Colorado State University where I could be at the same time a uh, science like a plant science person and also study literature, which was my main passion. And I thought If I can't figure out the ag side, I'll become a literature professor. So I was really on the track for that. And by the time I graduated uh, in 73, the wine business had absolutely exploded. That's when it went from a dozen wineries to a 100 wineries in that four-year period. The world was crying for oenologists uh, because all these people, like your father... uh, had moved out here and had a big intention, but didn't really know how to make wine. And they needed, there was suddenly a a need for the technical class. So I I spent a year thinking about it. Um, I got a job at Christian Brothers, and which was then the biggest winery in Napa as a, you know, a a union racker and blender. And, And that was the, that's where CIA Greystone is, correct? Was that uh, or was that no, one it's, of that that was them also but this was the kind of factory that now belongs to Sutter home That's just north of Louis Martini. Got it. Okay. Yeah, yep. it looks like an oil refinery yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Anyway, I worked there just because I had to get a job and I made enough money to go knock around Europe uh, on a Eurail rail pass uh, for a year listening to mostly listening to classical music And in that year was my debate. Am I going to be a winemaker and go back to college and learn all this stuff? Or am I going to stay in the ivory tower and become an academic? And by the time the year was over, I had figured out that I would go back. And so I went uh, a year and a half to Monterey Peninsula College to study uh, the prereqs. And then I had six months at Napa College. And so with two years of of going back to junior college, basically, to get the science I got to Davis as a graduate student. So, what year was that? Uh, I guess I got into Davis in uh, seventy-five. Got yeah. it. So that so seventy-six. You're,
0: yeah. Got it. Yeah. So I was there. I started seventy-five as a freshman. So our paths mm-hmm. never crossed. Um, yeah, you were a little kid. I was a then, little but, kid, and. Yeah. Uh, the only time I crossed paths with a bunch of folks in your generation of winemakers was uh, Dr. Cook's Vit 110 class. I think. It oh was. yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. You know, I took. I think I took that as a junior. I don't think you were in it. Tony Soder was in it, and Dick Ward yeah. and yeah. Kathy that was almost and Yeah. Yeah. And they were. Yeah. They were sitting in front. I was sitting back, messing around. But yeah. he was a. He was a character. Yes, <laughs> he was. <laughs> okay. Anyway, yes, okay, was. well, good. So you were, so you got out of grad school, and then what about your folks? Were they into what were they What did they think about you getting into wine? Uh,
1: I think they were just barely open-minded. Let's say it was it was okay with them, but they thought I should have gone to law school. I think, but right. Martha, my little sister, did that. We tricked her and made her do it. I remember that she yep. did. Yeah, she did go to law school, I remember that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> you tricked her. <laughs> God, it's terrible siblings. All right, yep. so you. All right, so you. You get out, of Davis. Um, yep. And uh, but wait a minute. I think did you meet Maggie at Davis?
1: Yeah. Well, actually, we met just before Davis. Okay. We 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 met when we were at Napa Community College, and it's a very sweet story. Uh, I'm still quite ferociously dyslexic, so I was. I was in the organic chem lab trying to put together a cash still or something, some apparatus with a drawing in front of me and all these glass parts, and I, I just couldn't do it. It was all coming out backwards. And Maggie, Maggie came like an angel. Uh, I didn't know her at all. She just came like a benign force across the lab and, you know, took the thing <laughs> out of my hands and put it all together. And, and I mean, that was it. That was the moment. Uh, it was oh, amazing. Wow. That's yeah, great. So we had a, our romance started at the, it's funny because we were, the community college is a wonderful force in the community and I'm a big supporter of it, but it was always the threat. Like if you really screwed up in high school, like you're just going to go to the junior college son. Right. So there I was already a successful academic, but back at the junior college <laughs> and there was Maggie who was reinventing herself. Also, she'd been a fine art undergrad and she wanted to go to Davis for horticulture. Uh, so we were both doing our prereqs together and then went to Davis together and by the end of my grad school we were uh, we were a couple.
0: And carried on and got married and the rest is history. Yep. Got it. That's it. Yeah. So meanwhile though, you're um you mentioned Andre Chelychev, who lived down the street, yep. so you guys mm-hmm. got to be good friends, which was how how ne- how neat for you. Yeah, Yeah. And I know there's another guy who had a big impact because it also plays into my dad's story a little bit. But tell me about Nathan Fay, your relationship yeah. with him.
1: Yeah. So Nathan was a was a family friend. Uh, obviously, uh, your neighbor there. Uh, he, I think, was the first, maybe the first grower, the, maybe the first Cabernet grower in the whole Stag's Leap area. So Nathan was a family friend. His British wife was uh, the kind of the founder of the Napa Symphony, and she had a soft spot for me because I was a music person. And Anyway, so I got to know them pretty well through my family, even before I was interested in wine. And then in 75, I guess I was still at the community college, the year before I went to Davis, uh, Nathan uh, helped me make my first ever barrel of wine. Oh. And that was... Interestingly enough, it was Atlas Peak Grapes, where I am now. It was from the Mead Ranch, and Nathan was a fantastic home brewer. I mean, a legendary home winemaker. And he um, invited me to join him to buy and uh, go in on a ton of Zinfandel from from the Mead Ranch. So, 75 Mead Zin was my first ever barrel of wine. Wow. And And then while I was at graduate <laughs> school in 70 six, seven, and eight, uh, Nathan, uh, sold me at the kind of family discount, uh, half a ton of Cabernet every year. So the first, the first great wine I ever made was 76 Fay Cabernet. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And yeah. was that, and the stories
0: I've heard, and you've got, I think you were part of this. There were a bunch of you guys that came over from Davis yeah. Nathan, yeah. you, Nathan and yep. I don't know how, how it started, but there was like this you guys would come over and pick grapes, he'd let you take make wine, then you'd spend the weekend and basically, yeah. you know, have he was drinking yeah, really men- good
1: wines. He was your guy, yes. right? He was our he was our mentor. So that was in oh. in seventy in seventy seven, I think it was. Uh, while I was at Davis, Nathan um, allowed me to get a whole any any number of my friends could Coming on this deal and we each got a half a ton of grapes and we went back to our graduate school garages uh, in my case I had a little homebrew winery barn at my parents place so it was Jack Stewart and uh, me and uh, Dan Lee and Tom Peterson Mike Fisher who became an accountant yeah wine accountant uh that was more or less the group oh and dick ward and dick Ward. yeah uh, yeah so we all we all made our wine that year and uh, it was a it was it was 77 it was the second of the drought vintages and nathan said God, i hope you guys are getting smart in school because i wouldn't know how to make wine out of a stupid <laughs> year like this but we in fact all made wonderful wine and we we uh, whoever's left of us we still have the odd bottle and get together and drink them and it was a great experience and I think the first wine most of the my colleagues ever made was that homebrew from Faye. wow it's yeah and Nathan was our he was our mentor and our drinking buddy and famous story where we were all uh, getting into his German wine <laughs> getting into his German wine cellar and. Uh, I think most of us were asleep in the garden, uh, in other words, passed out in right. the garden when when uh, Nellie, Mrs. Fay, came yeah. home and. She read Nathan, the right actor. He was the last man standing, but he was not in great shape either. <laughs> and, and I kind of woke up with one eye and looked at Nathan and he said, Oh, never mind, Nellie. She's just mad. She missed all the fun. <laughs> oh, Which was not true. Well, I've, I've, anyway. Yeah. I've heard of Nathan. this story
0: from different, from some of yeah. the, those ragtag group that you guys yeah. had, but, uh, so jealous, but, um, that was fun, but yeah. But fortunate because I got to know him too, and um, I'll yeah. tell you, I want to tell you about him and Dad in a minute. But yeah, but uh, I do remember Nellie quite well because mm-hmm. Liz was a part of the Symphony Board, so we I'd oh, end yeah. up going to these Symphony fundraiser dinners, and right, you know, it was Liz's thing. I was I went along for the ride, but um, I'd always end up seeing. Nathan, there, and it mm-hmm. would be at the end of the dinner, and people are milling about. And I'd run over and say, "Hey, Nathan, how you doing?" And John, without fail, every time he'd look at me and say, "How's it looking this year? How's the crop looking?" Uh-huh. I mean, yeah. it was just yeah. like, um, "How's it looking? How's it looking?" You know, is it? Um, yeah. Because he was retired, but he always wanted to know about the harvest. So it be great because yeah. we talk grapes, and then later after Nellie died you know he married uh, Mary Jane Mary Mary Jane Turnbull and uh, and I ended up buying Merlot from her from them and then he died but I bought her grapes for gosh 20 years so I got to know Mary Jane really well and she was a sweetheart so it was really fun and the Dad Nathan story I remember coming home from Davis this is seventy seven seventy eight and Dad was thinking about doing a winery, and I think he was he might have even approached you. I think you were in one of those meetings once, but he was trying to get Nathan to be his partner and I um oh uh-huh. and I was we were cleaning out his some of his files after he died. and I found some notes because he kept everything and yeah. i I saw this you know. Uh, he used to take copious notes and pro-con comparisons, do this, do that. Mm-hmm. But one was specifically about Nathan or having a partner. And his, mm-hmm. his note to himself was, Nathan knows how to make wine. I don't. I don't know yeah. anything about it. You know, he could be. And I think he really courted Nathan. And Nathan finally said, you know, I just, I'm happy growing grapes. I really don't want to get in the wine business. So, yeah, that's but interesting. Um, I remember that pretty clearly. So, yeah, good stuff. But meanwhile, you start making wine. What was when you got out of the garage making it? Where'd you Where'd you go? What was your What's your my history there?
1: My first ever job was uh, nineteen finish seventy nine. Maggie and I were just married, and my pal from one of my pals from davis doug knoll who's a zinfandel maker now right right doug and i uh convinced some uh investment group in uh Healdsburg to hire us to build them and then uh make build the winery and make the wine for them so it was a place called balvern and it was a short-lived thing it was a bunch of good enthusiastic guys who maybe their business sense wasn't what we thought it might be, but it was a great opportunity for these two. You know, we, it was really the one-eyed leading the blind. We had, we, we, we were pretty green, but you know there was a big need for winemakers, so we cut our teeth. Doug and I did there, and that, that was just lasted for a couple of years, and then the winery. I think they decided it was a bad idea and sold the vineyard and the winery to somebody else, and. Right when it was starting to crash, that seemed like this opportunity was going to come to an end. I was just fortuitously courted by uh, Peter and Sue Newton to come out and take over uh, at the Newton Winery in St. Helena. This is after Peter ran Sterling, founded Sterling, and ran it for all those years and then sold it. And with the cash from that, decided to build himself a smaller, more boutique y place. Got it. Up on the Lee of on the on the bottom of just part way up Spring Mountain. Right. So that was my that was my first really big deal job. And that was uh, when was that? Nineteen. That was the first vintage was eighty three. Okay. I I did what you're not supposed to do. I got a new job, a new house and a new kid, all in the same (laughs) week actually. Oh Maggie was Maggie (laughs) was pregnant with Alex. And uh, this thing came up and I dove on it. And anyway, we all survived it. Um, yeah, so I worked there from from 70... No, sorry, from 83, 83 until 95. So, so thir- that, 13 vintages. Yeah,
0: you were, you were there a long time. You were the guy at Newton. And d- help me out. Um, that's when you started doing the unfiltered shard. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So right yeah I this, you know, you succeed this was people don't know this right now this everybody out there john konsgard started doing something we thought he was a crazy man he was making chardonnay and not filtering it and that was you just did not do that trust me because yeah. i've had to rebottle wines you know you got to filter white wine you're out of your mind if you don't and all of a sudden this thing's it's gorgeous wine. It's getting great reviews, and Conard's up there. At Newton making this thing called unfiltered Chardonnay. It's blowing up around the country. Everybody loves it, and we're all going, "How you do that? You
1: can't do that. You can't do that." So I, I really want to. Can you tell me the story? How this happened? Yeah, yeah. Well, Peter, my good fortune. I mean, I had many great things happen while I was at Newton, but the best part of it was that uh, Peter was a Brit. Uh, and he expected me to go to Europe on his nickel every year for two weeks for like a research mission. Okay. So I was at Newton. We made Bordeaux varieties, Cabernet and Merlot, and then we made Chardonnay and a little bit of Sauvignon Blanc. But so I would each year I would go either to Bordeaux or Burgundy. Um, this is starting in 83 or 84. Mm-hmm. And i discovered so you know i did my research i had a big wine budget from peter i was obliged to spend you know thousands of dollars a month on european wine that were we thought to be like the antecedents of what we were trying to do at newton right so i did my white burgundy study and then picked the places i wanted to visit and then over the years repeatedly went to you know bono de martre and la Fon and costa and all the great places Jobar, and in that time, um, California wine was just like a uh, like a joke in France. They just mm-hmm. they were so not threatened by some curious thirty something year old winemaker coming around uh asking questions like you know van de california like really you, you make wine in california that's funny yeah, said, yeah. okay just oh. let me know what you're doing here anyway so it was a it was they were very funny. open okay yeah very very oh. encouraging and so i realized uh on after several trips to to white burgundy that they were doing things very differently from how we were taught at Davis right, and among those things was that um, they were not adding yeast, okay they were they were uh, fermenting the wine in barrel, they were uh, leaving it in barrel for the great places were leaving the wine in the barrel for two years, like the way we make Cabernet. Right. And nobody, nobody in Napa had or California had thought of that yet. Right. So I came back with my research notes and we thought, okay, let's try it. So starting in the, in the late eighties, I think the first year we did it was 88. Okay. um, On an experimental basis. And, uh, the wine was a little, so it was two years in barrel, no no yeast, uh, so, spontaneous, malolactic, yeah. long aging in the, in the cold cave, uh, and then bottled. But you don't need to filter the wine if you have the patience to leave it in the barrel for two years. And yeah. it's, let's say, microbiologically stable. It's mm-hmm. been all the way through, all the sugars fermented and all the... Malic acid is turned it's, into exactly. lactic acid. So, it's, so then the so wine it sounds, is, yeah. it's sta- it's stable. It's not going to ferment any further. Right. So. So, it, but the wine is just a little tiny bit hazy, and so we did a bottling, uh, of, two year aged wine, two year aged Chardonnay, uh, one one little part of it filtered and the other, most big part of it not filtered. And then I went around the country to all of Newton's wholesalers and did a, a uh, did blind tastings, Or I just said, "Here's two wines that are pretty similar, but you tell me which one they want, which right. one you like and it could have been at a wholesaler with very sophisticated staff. it could have been with one of these you know booze driven uh, companies where they're basically liquor salesmen peddling some wine so i I tasted. Mm maybe a dozen wholesalers um with the full staff you know the friday tasting when everybody comes in and gets lectured by the winemakers and the whiskey people and so on anyway and i said okay you choose which one do you like and just to the one everybody liked the wine that was not filtered Hmm. better than the other one i mean not by a lot but it was uh, always it was always the case and then i said okay now really look at it hold it up to the light and if it's, uh, do you see that the one you liked is just a little bit hazy and I'd already won their hearts. They said, ah, never mind that. And <laughs> so we had the, we had the courage then to do it. So 1990 was the first not filtered. Um, I mean, unfiltered is the wrong word. What's what we said, but it was the first not filtered two year aged, uh, white wine bottled in the country. I'm sure. Oh, and it, it just, and it blew up, right? That's my recollection. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah were...
1: I mean, it was a it was a huge success. And then suddenly everybody wanted to learn how to do it. And I had the pleasure at Newton and then uh, later on, but especially at Newton, I had the pleasure of having a, a lot of apprentices, um, mm-hmm. you know, some of the known characters in the business who are just a little younger than I am. Uh, they all came and learned how to do it. And that... that uh, message has been passed around the country and now it's it's uh not so uh, it's not so unusual exactly yeah
0: well yeah. you're a, you're a good man to share thank you for that which is yeah which is kind of napa valley starting with yep. robert mondavi um yep. and were you, were you is this when you met michelle roland was he working with you up at newton
1: yeah okay yeah. roland who's now of course the most famous of consultants Right. Um, I was his first, uh, I, we used to say, uh, humorously, I was his first victim uh, in the country.
0: <laughs> what was that so like? actually? How'd that, yeah, how that, that happen?
1: how did you guys find one well, or we, vice versa? We've, we found him in Bordeaux. Peter and Sue ah, Newton and I were, were looking around in Bordeaux to, to try to bring a consultant, uh, to help us with the Bordeaux side. And. So we got on to Michel. He was a, had a big consulting practice uh, in Bordeaux at that time. And when he came, he, he worked for us and for when Harlan and Levy were Maryvale before right. Harlan. So it was, it was um, maybe they were then the second year. But anyway, the, the first really three of us were, was um, Harlan, Levy, and then he did a little work for Zelma Long at... Uh, see me in those days and it was a blast he was so fun he just blew my mind like all the things that i got to unlearn when michelle came like well why don't we push the ripeness a little bit how about this crop is way too heavy okay michelle would say in his bad english he'd say can we do something (laughs) i'd say (laughs) like what do you want to do we want to put half of this crop on the ground I said, oh, yeah, okay, I'm going to tell Tony Truchard to drop half his crop. Yeah, yeah. no, I don't think no, so. No, Anyway, no, no. so it evolved because of Michelle. I think another, if I have two things that I did in the wine business in Napa that would I might be remembered for, one was this white wine uh, making non-technique of two-year aging and non-filtré. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that uh, Peter and I basically invented the so-called acreage contract. Because Uh, Roland said, you gotta get half of these, you gotta go down to three tons to the acre from five. And uh, then your wine will have concentration. And so so we- Explain how that works to people. Yeah, okay, so the the grower makes his money uh, by selling a winery uh, as many tons of grapes as he can. And, Uh, per ton, let's just say tons per acre. And a Napa can grow anywhere between six and all the way down to two. And even a vineyard that wants to grow four tons to the acre probably makes better wine if it's thinned, uh, if the crop is thinned down to, let's say, three or two and a half. Mm -hmm. This was certainly our conviction in that period. So We had, of course, a lot of blowback from the growers because we were asking them to throw their money on the ground, and so we would say to the grower, okay, you think this is a five ton to the acre vineyard? And let's say the Cabernet costs, you know, whatever it is, $5,000 a ton. Okay, so here's your $25,000 an acre. Here's the check for all the grapes that you want to grow. Now, you have to listen to me, and I'm gonna tell you to cut off half of the crop in July. And they said, "Why not? It's better for the vine to have less fruit on it," uh, and it meant we effectively raised the price of the grapes for ourselves. But what we gained was uh, was worth the money. You bet. So that's that's how we did it. Yeah. So those were those were what Roland taught me those things, and it was it was so funny because in the early days. He had I don't have any French really, right. and Michelle had almost no English. But we had Spanish in common. Oh, <laughs> so we we did our he would come for three or four days, uh, in the growing season, and then he would come again at harvest, and then maybe one more time for the tastings when we're making the blends. We did the whole thing in Spanish, uh, and then with the then the uh, owners Peter and Sua ah, Newton would come and have the tasting with us, which we would have to do in English, and. Mrs. Newton would say to the, to the, uh, to Michelle, what do you think of this one? he would say, not bad. And <laughs> how about this wine? Not bad. And then the best one, he would say, not completely bad. Oh, and that's so, great. That's yeah, not funny. So We had it all kind of private to ourselves, that's but he, he definitely changed the way we thought about wine.
0: No, he yeah. did. He uh, made a great impact. And, um, you know the ripeness thing was big, and that was something we kind of figured out on our own. Well, Tony Soder helped Elias and me, but yeah. you know we started you know getting past twenty three, and the wines are just better. They're just richer yeah. and dark darker fruit, and and you know the the consu- consumers marketplace recognized it and and said, yeah, keep it up. We love it. Yep. So yep. off we went. So yep. good news. So you're up at Newton. Um, yep. Let's see. And I think in the mid '90s you and you started doing your own thing with Maggie, right? With
1: Stonecrest yeah. Chardonnay. Is that, so, what, was yeah. that the so start we, of Consgard? Kind of. Is that how that worked? Yeah. Yeah. So in, I was finally um, ran out of patience working with uh, Mrs. Newton, who is a um, controversial character. We'll just leave it at that. Uh, I mean, she's still my friend, but we sure. had a hard time working together. Mm-hmm. We so uh, at that point we that is so this is now uh 2000 no this is let's see 96. Yeah. okay yeah 96. Got it. so we so i left newton and peter was this was in the days before the winemaker could have his little side brand that right. was just absolutely not happening and i didn't even bring it up with Peter Newton, like, here's what I want to do. I want to start my own winery. Can I use a little corner of the cave? Or, right. I just is that was out of, out of the question. So I resigned, and uh, it, we have to give Maggie the full credit for this because I have uh, still almost no, but I had then absolutely no business sense, no entrepreneurial zeal. I was perfectly happy to move to another job and run somebody else's winery. Maggie said, no, no, we, we can figure this out. So with her courage uh, and with no money, uh, we started Kongsgaard in uh, 96. Okay. And the, the way we managed it was I got a job at Luna uh, in Napa, which was just forming, and they needed, a, they needed a known name winemaker, somebody who could help them finish the building. I knew about construction. Uh, and part of my deal was... That I would be able to make my wine under their roof, just as part of my compensation. So that's that's how that's, we got going.
0: You know, I never knew because I remember you went to Luna. It was like, I was like, yeah. it was a head scratcher. Why is he doing yeah. that? You know? Yeah. Okay. Well, it that's was, the it was perfect
1: because there was no competition. Luna was Mike Moon and George Vere. Right. And they wanted to make Italian uh, calatal. That's right. So. I had to learn how to make Pinot Grigio and Sangiovese, which was a lot of fun and a lot more trips to Europe, uh, different parts <laughs> of Europe. Um, so I was not really competing them with them by making Chardonnay and at the same time we started the brand Arietta, which was sort of the Cabernet leg of my endeavor with our partner Fritz Hatton. So Arietta and Kongsgaard were born under the roof of Luna uh, where we didn't have to pay rent Um, and I stayed there for five years. Um, I also had, it started a consultancy at that time because I needed the Luna paycheck plus a little more money to keep the ship afloat while we waited for the first bottles to come out the other end of the winery. So yeah, so I was at Luna for five years and it was, that was a great job. It was so fun to make. I mean, Parker said this is the greatest Pinot Gris in the New World. Like that was pretty easy to say because there were only like three of us. But anyway, it was fun. It was a great job. Well, it sounds and like we, it because you're you yeah. got you know
0: you're starting your own thing. You're starting with something with Fritz Hatton, Arietta, and you're yep. you're playing playing with Sangiovese and Pinot Grigio or Pinot Gris. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that would be fun. Yeah. What a gas! It was a good time. Yeah. Okay. That's good to know. Well, everyone, I drive by that building all the time, so now I'll, yeah. I'll have a different attitude when I go by there. That's that's yeah. good. Yeah. And it, now, jumping jumping uh, subjects here, but talk to me, because chamber music and the classical music is so much a part of your life. Is that something that was going on the whole time, or did it did it get yeah. put on hold when you had kids, or this no, job or that no. job?
1: How, how's that work? So there was a there's a wonderful guy uh, who was a lawyer at, in Napa called Dick Lemon. Yeah, he was at DPNF for a long time. And so Dick uh, founded Chamber Music. He was, the, he was the kind of acquisitions lawyer, um, helping people buy and sell wineries. And he helped Claude Val get off the ground, speaking okay. of the Stag's Leap neighborhood. And so the French owners said, we'd like to do something for the community. Um, what would you advise us to do? Dick Lemon, our lawyer. And mm. he said, well, I've always wanted to start a chamber music concert series in Napa. And they said, that's great. That's kind of Europe that we'd love to get behind that. So Claude Duval was the original sponsor and it started in 1980. And Maggie and I moved back over here to take the Newton job in 83. I started going to the concerts. We, we started going to the concerts and, uh, Dick was, all very inspired but didn't actually know that much about the music he was trying to put on and so i over the few years went from just sort of writing the program notes to actually taking over the artistic administration so by by say 85 i was completely in charge of the everything except the sales and you know the admin so, yeah, it was great. It was a great opportunity for me because not it's one thing to love music and it's another level of thrill to put on concerts. And now the thing is in its chamber music in Napa Valley is just started its 41st year. And wow. we, we bring the very, very best people in the world, um, solo pianists and cellists and string quartets and opera singers and. That's just become the absolute center of my life. I mean, I make wine to uh, for equal, equal pleasure in my life as running the winery, but the music thing is really an extra special part of it. And at this point, it's 10 concerts a year, and whoever they are, if it's a string quartet from Prague or a pianist from Moscow, uh, they come and stay with us up on the mountain, and we have a nice piano in our music room, and so... Uh, that's really become a big, big part of my life. Yeah. Oh, that's great!
0: That's wonderful. Yeah,
1: very fun. And
0: uh, do you still? I I heard that you play classical music in your barrel rooms and caves
1: to your wines. Absolutely, just, there you go. Absolutely, yeah. Somebody asked me, that's... "Does the does the music influence the wine?" <laughs> and I say it influences the winemaker, and mm-hmm. the winemaker makes the wine. So, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, Too good. So, all right. So
0: you're cranking along the Luna days. And then at some point you move on from Luna because, yeah, because you guys, because you built your, your current one, your up on the hill, up
1: on Atlas peak. Is that correct? Yeah. So, yeah. So the history, so I was at Luna for five years and it was kind of my deal when I signed up for that job that I told my, my colleagues, Mike Moon, especially, um, that if Kongsgaard flies, I'll be gone in five years okay. and I'll commit to you for five years. And then if Kongsgaard fails, I'll stay here. <laughs> and anyway, the, fortunately for us, things went very well. And so after five years, we, uh, Arietta and Kongsgaard left Luna and we leased a winery in St. Helena. And we just got an empty winery in um so we were at that was the Boswell, which burned down recently. Right. We so we were at Boswell for uh, for five more years. So that got us uh, to well, whatever year that was. Um, well, I mean, so, was probably mid
0: two thousands, I think something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Mid two
1: thousands. So okay. we 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 um, five years at Luna, five years at Boswell, and then um, we thought at that point you know maybe we're maybe somebody will loan us some money um (laughs) and and so we thought okay now's the time to make the move and we found searched the valley for in the hills for a property where we could dig a cave build a house and have a vineyard so that ended up the in this amazing property on the top of atlas peak we're looking out at the bay on one side and you can see from the winery. You can see the Golden Gate Bridge and the Sierras. Oh, it's just an it's just an amazing mountaintop here. Jeez, yeah, fantastic. And I had made I had made some Cabernet uh, in the in the Luna days. I had made some Cabernet from the adjoining property, so we knew the grapes would be good from up here. Great. So you Yeah. Guys so that see. was yeah was... 90, 90, uh, two thousand and four. Okay. 2004, we we bought this 150 acres up on Atlas Peak of just virgin land. It's nothing here, um, and we we dug a cave, which was completed by the in time for the 90, or the 2006 vintage, and then we started planting. We now have 14 acres of grapes up here and uh, a lovely house to live in. So it's kind of all on the same property now, finally.
0: Nice, I got it yeah. um, I've got a confession to make. Um, I've mm-hmm. never spent much time up on Atlas Peak. Maybe yeah. you know I went up to Gleny's Glen, place, Glen yeah. yeah, yeah. place for yeah Glen's place for a San thing twenty years ago and then you know yeah. this was a, uh, it's a this past harvest was uh, you know small crop, big small crop you know we saw it in yeah. June. Elias does his thing. He says we're short. I said goodbye. I don't see him for two weeks, and he goes everywhere looking, looking for grapes. And you know, because mm-hmm. we got got to get more fruit. And he ended up in Atlas Peak. Someone's told him about something, and we actually, God, we bought grapes from two or three people up there. Mm-hmm. And so then he, you know, it's getting close to harvest. So he drags me up one day. He says, "You need to go see this. I got to show you where these vineyards are because you got to yeah. because I'm I'm his I'm his big sample guy. So you know, go sample yeah. here." John, absolute. I've really never been up there too much. My God, you know, you look across to Pritchard Hill. I think that's where you can see that.
1: It's absolutely Mm -hmm. stunning. So yeah, I was blown away. It's just
0: beautiful. And
1: um, it's a dead. It's a dead end road, and so you know, if you could drive through and come out on Pritchard Hill, which you can on a jeep road, uh, people would know about it. But it's it's really a kind of one of the sacred backwaters, and you get way up here, it feels like you're in. Cattle country in the nineteen twenties. Yeah, exactly, it's, it's like yeah, it's that. Great.
0: Yeah, it's like that Montana thing. It's gorgeous. Yep. So, um, so I, I'm going to come see you. I don't care. I'll let you yep. know. I'll I call. I'll call yep. first. But I'm going to come see yep. you. And then uh, you've had, you've got something fun going on. Alex, your son joined you at some point. Tell me about that. Yes.
1: Yeah. Okay. Great. My my son Alex, who's uh, I'm seventy and he's thirty eight, and so uh, he. He just grew up with me in the Jeep changing the irrigation <laughs> at Newton and so on. So he, he's a farm boy and he a kind of a green thumb and loves to make things and build things. And so he was kind of a natural to be helping. Uh, and he does a lot of things. He's a boat builder and a surfer and a, he, he has a lot of interests. Uh, but he started helping us about 15 years ago kind of be around for harvest and show up for bottling and otherwise he's working in a boatyard or all kind of different things and then uh we had the bad fortune of of maggie getting uh quite ill about 12 years ago and he did the right thing as one w- as you'd hope your kid would and said you can take care of mom and i but i can take care of the wine Wow. So that that was two thousand eleven, hmm. like the most challenging vintage. Yeah, of, that was that was a memorable of one. Our wasn't? lives. <laughs> Good yeah, gee, no kidding. Good luck, buddy. Uh, uh, yeah, and he made uh, he made magnificent wine then. And so on and off over the next ten years I was more or less uh helping him depending on how it was going with the other the Maggie project. Mm-hmm. Uh so he really became he really took over the production and he runs the Judge Vineyard. He actually owns the Judge Vineyard now. He's just inherited that from me ahead of my ahead of me going to the grave. Um, so we're total partners now, and great. I'm back working with him. And so it's a terrific setup. It's just oh, fun. It's what it's what people dream of, and right. it's happening to me. Yeah, it's great. Good for you. So tell
0: me, what are you guys making? What what flavors? With so we
1: have the let's say in a typical year for a round number, we make. 3,500 cases out of that 2,000 and something is the so called Napa Valley Chardonnay okay. and that's from grapes purchased on long term acreage contracts from primarily from Lee Hudson and Larry Hyde in Carneros two great ones, great growers two great ones, yeah, yeah the two best custom yeah. growers in, in Carneros and my old friends, Lee and I go back to Davis days together Right, right. And I, I bought from Larry Hyde all the way, and Lee all the way through the Newton time. So we're old, old colleagues. Um, so that's the Napa Chardonnay. And then the other Chardonnay is called the judge. I talked about that at the top right. of our discussion. That's from our little, uh, our little family property, uh, east of Napa, also in the Hills, very, very low production, a kind of a super austere one ton to the acre site. So that that's the judge. That would be three or four hundred cases only, because right. that's all we can get off of those five acres. Um, and then we make uh, a few hundred cases of Syrah from Hudson, and maybe five hundred cases of Cabernet from up here, grown on the ranch and uh, uh, on Atlas Peak, and then from our our Kitty Corner neighbor. Got it. So that's the run. And then we make a we make a. Almost non commercial amount of Albarino and Viognier just for our pleasure. I mean, we sell them to the mailing list, but that's tiny production, couple of barrels.
0: Hey, I gotta, I gotta ask you something. Uh, Lee's Syrah down in Carneros, yeah. Um, because we we've got we grow some Syrah up, you know, around uh Oak Knoll up just south yeah. of Sagsweep. It's beautiful, yeah. it's great, it's relentless, it's all that. Um, yeah. But we started buying some uh, Syrah from Tony Truchard, which is kind of yeah. Carneros. Yeah. And I don't know, man, John. I, it seems to me—correct me if I'm wrong—but I finally got pepper. I got pepper out of yeah. Tony's stuff.
1: So the yeah. Is that what you're getting out of the leaves? You get more pepper yeah. and spice. Okay. Yeah, I think it's I think it's because it's, Truchard and Hudson are are similar in that they are. They're in Carneros, and so it's, therefore, it's much colder than colder. it is than Oak Knoll or right. where you guys Steak are. Sleep, right. Yeah. Um, so I think you can have that attractive uh, roan ish aroma if you grow it in a cold place, but mostly where it's cold down in Carneros, the soil's not so interesting for yeah, soil. Yeah, that's true. And so at Truchard and at Hudson, you have these little volcanic areas where it's not the normal Carneros clay or shale. Good so point. that's to me, that's to me the magic. If that's you can a get good it, point. Yeah, because yeah. we're, we're toying with the
0: idea of planting some syrup on red shoulder. We got you know, a couple blocks yeah. that, and, um, but we're, we'll probably play with it. We know, you know, to, to get it right, we might have to drop crop, you know, to really go light, but. I really want that pepper. I'm just dying for yeah. it. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that, that, that's the formula, yeah. Thank, well, thanks for the free advice. Send me a bill. Sure, <laughs> yep. And best yeah, place, good. if people want to find your wines, how do they do it? They got to drive uh, up the road? How Can they do it
1: no, electronically? No, we, we don't. We're, yeah, electronically. We're, <laughs> we are are we we made a point when we got our permit um, that we are absolutely not allowed to have the public come here. Okay. So this is a truly private winery. Um we got through all the first years, um, all the wine going away without ever having to receive anybody. When I was working at Luna, it would have been inappropriate to have Kong's guard customers there. Right. So anyway, we managed without ever uh, having to do a tasting uh, or see anybody. I think we're unique in the wine business is that we really hardly know our customers. Um, anyway, that's means we can be farmers and not PR guys. Um, so the way to get the wine is to uh, join our mailing list on online. So okay. you just look at you look at KongScardwine.com. I mean, just kongsgard, it'll come up. And we have a there are a lot of wineries in Napa that are very exclusive. And I like to think of ourselves as inclusive. So whoever signs up for our mailing list can buy something, at least in the in the next year. Oh, okay. great. I mean, so it's an annual offering. It's not some made-up, endless, um, fake waiting list like a lot of our funny colleagues. It's like, <laughs> come, we want you to buy our wine. Right. So, anyway, you might have to wait a couple of years before you can get your four bottles of the Judge and that sort of thing. Those right. uh, that's quite allocated. But anyway, that's that's how it works. And so we're we we sell, you know, most of the wine to the annual offering to our so-called mailing list it's an email thing now Uh, and then the rest goes all over the world um, to restaurants so you can find us in the best places on all continents you know here here and there yeah
0: good to know all right my friend i've taken enough of your time but thanks for taking the time with us today that was great great to talk to you great to hear these stories Learned it was some, a pleasure. Yeah.
1: Let's get together for a drink one of these days. You bet, man. All right. Great. Best okay. to you, John. Thanks again. Righto. See you. Thank you. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: John Consgard, always fun to talk to. And what a story. So glad he and I got a chance to catch up. Be sure to do yourself a favor and try to track down his wines. It may take a while, but you won't be disappointed. Thanks for spending time with us again today. If you enjoy what you hear on The Taste and want to help other people find the podcast, please take a moment to rate and review it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any thoughts on the podcast, if you want to suggest future guests, or just say hi, the email address is podcast at schaefervineyards.com. We'll see you next time.